0: Let's open our Bibles to Exodus chapter 27, and we begin to deal with the altar that we call the brazen altar of sacrifice. It's called the altar of burnt offering sometimes in chapter 27. We're going to read a portion of it, verses 1 through 8 first, and then we'll pick up with some more. This whole thing is uh, Exodus 27, 1 through 21, but there's other things that are spoken of about the gate and how it's divided up and everything uh, in the front part and uh, where the altar is located. And of course, if you have your picture, you can see where all these things take place as well. So let's read verses 1 through 8, if you will. It says, And thou shalt make an altar of Shittim wood, five cubits long and five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square and the height thereof shall be three cubits. If you'll notice the size of this, it's seven and a half feet square, and it's four and a half feet high. So this is the largest one of the pieces of furniture, and this is a, called the brazen altar of sacrifice, or the, or the altar of burnt offering. This is where the sacrifice was made. If you look at your picture, it's the first uh, item as you go in the gate of this court from the outside. Uh, We'll mention that brazen labor in just a little bit where it says the labor because uh, it's studied over in the 30th chapter. And we'll get it in that due time. We may say a few remarks about it as we go along, but the bulk of the teaching is in the 30th chapter concerning the labor where the priests washed their hands and their feet and cleansed themselves before they went into the tabernacle. So that's another item that we haven't studied if you notice on the picture. Now then, by the way, a good memory verse for this section would be Hebrews 13, verse 10. Hebrews thirteen ten, and there it says, We have an altar whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle. We have an altar above that which they participated in the Old Testament. And that altar is, of course, Christ's sacrifice and what He has done. Now, we've studied the tabernacle in all of its uh, parts. We started from the inside where God is and we've now come out to where man is, a sinner by nature, and he has to enter in from this gate. And your picture will be very helpful as we make all these comments. The tabernacle itself was divided into two parts. We've already mentioned that it was uh, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. The Holy of Holies was behind the veil. And the holy place was in the forefront of the first part of the tabernacle. And inside the Holy of Holies was that Ark of the Covenant we mentioned. And when I point backward, you'll see that I'm referring to behind the veil. And in it was the tables of law, the Ark of the Covenant. And it had the tables of the law. It had the golden pot of manna. And it had Aaron's rod that budded. The three things inside there. And it was covered over by what we call the mercy seat, uh, which was a lid or the top of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside we find the cherubims overshadowing the mercy seat. And inside the Holy of Holies you have that Shekinah glory. It was a special glory from God that lighted that holy place. Remember, there was no light in there otherwise. There was a veil in it, completely walled in and so it would have been dark except for a divine presence in there. This was the dwelling place of God. He said He had made this tabernacle that He could dwell among them. And then we come to the holy place from this veil on out to the, to the entrance. And you see it on your picture. Uh, you had uh, the, these other things. You had the table of showbread. And that means Christ is the bread of life. All these things speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. You had the golden candlestick on the S side, table of showbread over here, kind of like it's arranged in our building here. There's the there's communion table. Here's the light over here. And so it's, if you want to just use that as a, uh, as a means of trying to age your memory as to where things were placed. And then, of course, you had the altar of incense that is right before you go into this veil. And that was symbolical of prayer. And it was symbolical also of Christ's intercession for us. He is our intercessor. And we've studied the coverings, the fine needlework. We studied about the ceiling of the tabernacle, and that speaks of uh, the and the cherubims wrought in fine linen. It, it must have been a very beautiful picture. This fine linen represents Christ, our righteousness, and uh, the cherubims were in colors that represent. Uh, and typify the Lord. Remember, blue and purple and scarlet. And if you look at the material list we gave you, we'll, it, it shows you all the meaning of those uh, colors that we gave. And then you have over this, uh, covering the fine linen, you have the goat's hair. That symbolizes Christ our substitute. And then you have the ram skins dyed red. And this speaks of the sacrificial death of Christ. Then you have the badger skins over that, Four layers of covering over this tabernacle. The badger skins speak of the humiliation of Christ. Remember we mentioned that someone from the outside would say, What do these Israelites find in that little old building there covered with this ugly looking covering here? It doesn't look like anything worthy of our notice. But on the inside, the priestly family could look up and see the beauty of the inside. And that's like seeing the inside of the Lord. That's like a Christian knowing the beauties of the Lord, and the fellow on the outside cannot see that until he's brought into Christ where he can see the beauty and glories of the Lord. And that's the difference. What they saw from the outside is not beauty. But to be in Christ is to to be in the place of glory and beauty. And to be outside of Christ is to be in the desert without hope. Those on the outside had no hope. They didn't have the hope that were was given to these Israelites. Now then, we will study the other part that you find here. We came outward from the Holy of Holies and all that we've studied through the tabernacle itself. But when you get into the court, look where it says labor. That piece we will not study till we get over to the 30th chapter. We could have studied it earlier by detouring like we did one time studying some of the things. But... We'll pick that up in uh, the 30th chapter, verse 18, and study the labor. And I'll just give you a little hint about it in a few words. The labor was for the priests. And uh, there's no one but those who had come by the brazen altar could come to this brazen labor. You had to come by this brazen altar at the entrance of the gate before you could come by the, the labor. And everyone who went into the tabernacle must come to the laver first. They couldn't go in. The priest couldn't go into the, into the uh, tabernacle until he came by that laver and cleansed himself and made himself prepared to enter into the tabernacle. And in order to even get to the laver, he had to accept that what the brazen altar will signify in a moment where Christ's sacrifice was made. It symbolizes where Christ's sacrifice was made. And so a person must... Come to Christ first and then have cleansing and then enter into the holiest or the holy place. So that it's all steps of progress in entering into God's presence. Now the labor is a picture of the Word of God. And The Bible says in the New Testament, the washing of water by the Word. I believe that's in Ephesians chapter 5, is it? I don't know what verse it is. I'll have to look it up. In the book of Ephesians... Chapter 5, I believe you'll find it. And let me give it to you. we speaking of the cleansing of... Okay, it says in verse um, 26, it says, alright, let's read verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave Himself for it now, they're talking about the church now. That He might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the Word. So it's symbolical of the Word of God by which we're cleansed. And the Word of God does cleanse every believer. And so this labor is a picture of the Word of God. And it is here, Back, you can turn back to Exodus now if you will, but it's here that we're cleansed from our daily defilements. And it's here that the filth of this world uh, is cleansed from us so that we'll be fit to meet God and worship God when we go into the sanctuary and into the presence of God. And we do this by the confession of our sins and Christ has made made uh, preparation for that. But we're constantly in the Word of God to cleanse ourselves. And the labor speaks of the fact that we need to be right with God before we go to church. You know, you don't come to church to get right with God, not necessarily, though many people do. But we uh uh go to church because we are right with god we We make those preparations that washing of water by the word at home and in our private lives and and we we are cleansed uh, daily by the Word. Remember when Jesus washed the disciples' feet, he was teaching them that they were clean, but he says, you, you know they need their feet washed because that's where we get contaminated day by day. That's John chapter 13. And you know, we're contaminated with the things of this world and every day we need uh, cleansing. And He was telling the disciples that you do not know what I'm doing now, but afterward you shall know. You shall know hereafter. We, we could not enjoy the beauty of the tabernacle until and unless we'd gone, gone by this labor and were able to enter into the tabernacle, there's no way we could enjoy the beauty of it. So we must be clean that bear the vessel of the Lord. The priests came in, and they did the things that they were supposed to do. Uh, The table of showbread, changing the bread uh, at the appointed times, and and uh, lighting the candles, and replenishing the oil, and trimming the wick, and all that thing that had to be done morning and evening. And they had to be cleansed before they could come in. They had to make the proper access of cleansing to come in. That's why the Bible says, Be ye clean that bear the vessels of the Lord. And so Christians are to be clean as we minister to the Lord. We can't be mixed up with the world and the flesh if we're going to bear the vessels of the Lord. We have to get that taken care of. We have to have that cleansing daily. Now I'm not talking just about preachers, but necessarily preachers and deacons and laymen and laywomen and all of our church family, and everyone that serves the Lord, because have we not shown you in First Peter chapter 2 where that all believers are priests? So all believers need to be cleansed as we enter into the holy things of God and the service of God. Now then, we must see how this is applicable or applies to all of us in our lives in yours and mine. And now we come to the brazen altar, chapter twenty seven. Before I go into reading verse one again and starting with this brazen altar that we read of in verse one, let me just give you the opportunity. On all of these things that we've studied and mentioned briefly now, is there any question in anyone's mind about any particular one of these things, or have we made it clear enough as to what it's all about? If you have any question Well, you just ask it, and I'll be glad to comment a little bit on it. Any question about what we've studied thus far? And these pieces of furniture, the table of showbread, the candlestick, the the, uh, altar of incense, and inside the veil, the mercy seat, and the Ark of the Covenant, and the mercy seat, and the things that were in there, the golden pot of manna, remembrance of their wilderness journey and how God fed them, and then the law, the two tables of the stone that were in there and how they were kept. And then Aaron's rod that budded signified resurrection life or life. Is there any questions that you would like to ask? Yes, guess I've been a good teacher then. Okay, let's go on. Look at this brazen altar. It says, Now shall make an altar of shittim wood, five cubits long, five cubits broad. The altar shall be four square. The height thereof shall be three cubits. You can see a picture of that, or at least a little drawing of that, at the entrance of the gate of this court, <coughs> like the fence around the tabernacle. And you'll see where it says brazen altar. By the way, let me just mention in passing that everything inside the tabernacle was Gold. And that which is in the courtyard there is brass. And brass in the Scripture symbolizes judgment, where the judgment of God was met by the sacrifices and the brazen altar of sacrifice, and then you have the labor of brass. All this symbolizes God having judged our sins, not only by the sacrifice, but by the washing that that takes place in the labor. Now, then, this uh, was the largest piece of furniture, by the way. We've given you the descriptions how it was seven and a half feet square and four and a half feet high. That's a pretty good size object and far larger than any of the other pieces of furniture. It was almost large enough to hold all the other pieces of furniture put together, like, lacking maybe a little bit. And it was placed before the door, it was placed just inside the outer court. You had to come by it. You had to come directly. you were de- directly confronted with it when you entered this gate of this court. And the altar uh, represents the cross of Christ. And there were four horns on the four corners of this altar. When we read it? I don't know if we read far enough, but anyway, I think we did. Yeah, but there are four hon- horns on the corner. Of this altar, yeah, that's in verse two. Thou shalt make the horns of it upon the four corners. Turn to uh, Psalm one eighteen, verse twenty seven. Psalm one eighteen, verse twenty seven says, the, "It says, God is the Lord which has showed us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords, even unto the horns of the altar." So it was, the horns were probably used to bind the sacrifices that were to be made. And that Scripture, Psalm 118, verse 27, tells us about it. And there were four parts of the body, hands and feet, wounded in the crucifixion. Four parts. If you look in Psalm 22, verse 16, let me give you this one. It says this, <clears throat> For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. So Christ's hands and His feet were pierced. He was submitted to the altar of sacrifice or the crucifixion or the cross. And of course, his was by the will and purpose of God. Remember Acts 2, verse 23. It says concerning Christ that he was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. and says, you have taken, ye have taken, and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. So it was in the purpose and plan of God that Jesus carried out his sacrifice on the cross of Calvary. And after His resurrection, He showed them His hands and His feet. Wounds that He had received. After His resurrection, And these, there are four Gospels that carry the story of the crucifixion. The Gospel mes- message reaches into the four directions of the world. North, east, south, and west. The Gospel message is for all colors. Black, yellow, brown, and white. The children sing the song Red and yellow... Black and white, they are precious in His sight. You know, sometimes we forget that just because there's wicked people in the world of certain races and certain nations, it doesn't mean that the Lord's salvation was not provided for them. It's provided for them. Many will not choose it, and many will not receive it. And some nations are completely closed to any hint of having... <clears throat> the gospel preached in their country. In some nations today under the penalty of death if you were to even mention it. Even this even in this present area of time. The sinners brought the sinner brought his divinely appointed victim to this altar, this brazen altar. And there was a fire burning there continually upon it, and there it stood, ever burning, ever smoking, ever blood stained, and ever open to the guilty. Jew that approached wanted to approach it. It was always prepared for him to approach. When the Israelite brought his offering before killing it, he laid his hands on the animal's head and thus identified himself with it. And he transferred his sin to the animal that was sacrificed on this brazen altar. By transference. He transferred that to that innocent victim that would be killed and would be sacrificed. And he was confessing that he deserved what was coming to that animal. The flawlessness of this animal was transferred to him. Remember, the animals that were to be offered were without spot or blemish. And the very fact that they were flawless, that transferred to to the one that offered what the flawlessness of that animal was. And that's why Jesus was offered without spot and without blemish to transfer His righteousness and His holiness to us by His death on the cross. And we, as much as, claim Christ as our victim of sacrifice. Some people have shuddered at this thought. But you actually do that when you accept Christ. You may not realize it at the time. And you may have to be taught before you realize the full significance of what Christ has done for you. But when even when a child accepts Christ as their Savior, they probably don't realize the the fullness of what they've done. But they have actually, in accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, said, in essence, Lord, I'm a sinner, and I transfer my sins to You in Your death on the cross. And thank You, Lord, for transferring Your righteousness to me, who is not worthy of any of it. That's a wonderful doctrinal truth that many of us and many grown-ups do not yet grasp it. So what have we done? We've taken Christ and we've laid our hands upon Him, upon His person, His head, Him in person, and saying, You're my sacrifice before a holy God for my salvation. And You gave Your life on the cross of Calvary. And You submitted to the death of the cross in order that you might give me your righteousness. That is how many of us have really realized what Jesus has done for us. I'm afraid many times we just take it too lightly and do not realize that that is a gospel truth. So, let's learn then from this brazen altar. This brazen altar was not placed outside the gate. Notice its position. In other words, the New Testament does not teach universal salvation. It does not teach salvation for everyone on the outside of the gate. We'll talk about the gate in a moment, and that's entering through Christ. But Christ died for those who would believe. No lamb was provided for the Egyptians on the night when the firstborn was slain. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest confessed only the sins of Israel because they were on the inside of their covenant relationship with God by sacrifice. The altar was provided for none except the chosen people. The tabernacle could not be entered by just anyone, even any Israelite, unless he came in the proper way. And they must have passed by this brazen altar. Bloodshedding was the basis of the approach to God. Remember where we said God was? And His presence was behind the veil. And... Out here in the court was only the beginning of entering into the presence of God. Bloodshedding was the basis of this approach. Nowhere was the wondrous grace of God to poor sinners so clearly displayed as it was on the cross of Calvary. It was there that God provided His grace. The grace of God is seen. And it was not provided by a sudden impulse that God didn't just have an impulse or a feeling and say, I'm going to provide for this sacrifice. The Bible tells us He was a lamb slain before the foundation of the world. And so God made this provision long beforehand. Let me read 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 for you. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 9 says this, Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, now listen, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. His own purpose and grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. And then we finally realize it. When we think of the length of the grace of God, it's ere time began. When we think of the breadth of the grace of God, look look in Romans chapter 9, if you will. Romans chapter 9. And I want you to notice verse 15. It says, For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So this grace was extended way back. And we could go on and read more. But its height was three cubits. Three in the Bible speaks of death, burial, and resurrection. The height of this altar speaks of Christ's death and His burial and His resurrection. It speaks of deity, the Trinity. And uh, brass, we talk about the materials of it. We've already mentioned that brass stands for judgment. John chapter 3. Let me read verse 14 and 15. And John chapter 3. The brazen serpent which Moses lifted up as a remedy for judgment. John 3 verse 14 and 15. It says, And as Moses <coughs> excuse me, lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. That serpent of brass in the Old Testament. When was it provided? It was provided when Israel was, had a deadly disease upon them. In fact, a plague. Everyone that was bitten by the serpent because of their disobedience would die. And they were dying by hundreds. And God told Moses what to do. He said, Moses, you make a serpent of brass. And brass, see, see they were, they were sin bitten. They were, they were guilty of sin. So that serpent represents sin and Satan and a lot of things. But anyway, he said, you make a serpent of brass, of brass. See, I I want to play on both of those thoughts. Not only a serpent, but of brass, signifying judgment. And you put him up on a pole and when you lift him up, everyone that beholds that serpent of brass shall live. We call that life for a look. Everyone that looked upon that, the plague was stayed and they lived, even though that there are many around them died. But those that looked upon that says, There's my judgment. God has provided for my sins. He's judged my sins and they of course re- received relief. And exemption from that judgment. Now look in John three again, it says in verse fourteen, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must the Son of Man be lifted up. So he was lifted up to bear our judgment. He was lifted up on the cross. That whosoever believeth in him or even looks upon him in faith, that's the same equivalent. We look to Christ in faith that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then that famous verse that we all know, For God so loved the world. That's verse 15. Then verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So he's explaining again that God provided. God so loved us that He provided that judgment upon His Son. For our salvation that we might have everlasting life or eternal life. Wonderful thought. The brazen serpent. So that became a salvation for Israel when this plague was upon them. Now, it was this uh, brazen altar that we're speaking of here was made of acacia wood. And it was covered with gold. And acacia wood speaks of the humanity of Christ. The humanity was necessary if He was to make atonement. Christ had to become man. He had to be manifest in the flesh in order to redeem us. An angel could not do it. A sinful man could not do it. Only a holy, only the holy, only begotten Son of God could do what Jesus did. Did you know that there was no other creature in the universe, in heaven or in earth, that could have done for us what Jesus did, because they couldn't meet the requirements that God required. He had to be man. And says, "For this purpose was the Son of God made manifest. He manifested Himself." That scripture we quote. Look at First Peter again, chapter one, verse eighteen. <coughs> for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a Lamb, listen, without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest, there you have it, in these last time for you who by Him to believe in God, that raised Him up from the dead and gave Him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. See, the full provision, I mean from before the foundation of the world to... Him being manifested before us in due time that our faith and hope might be in God who offered such a great plan for our salvation. I mean, we sing that song at Calvary. Oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. I think I've mentioned to you before, if you've been here long enough, I'm sure I have, That the only there's only one place in the Bible that you find the word Calvary. I believe it's in Luke chapter twenty-three, but anyway, uh, when they were come, probably verse thirty-three. I'll have to check it out now since I've questioned myself. Luke chapter twenty-three, and let's see if it is verse thirty-three. No, it was yeah, it is verse thirty-three. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. Okay, Luke twenty-three thirty-three. Is the only time you find the word Calvary. Of course, it was called Golgotha or the place of a skull and various other things in the other Gospels and by other means, but it was called Calvary in Luke 23-33. But anyway, I can give you the reason for that in another sermon that I'll preach. But let's go on with this. So what we find, the uh, acacia wood that this was made out of, we're talking about the the uh, materials for this uh, brazen altar, back in uh, Exodus chapter twenty-seven, that the wood for the altar is connected with slaughter, the shedding of blood. Therefore, the one who was to be true, be the true altar, must be capable of dying. So Christ was capable, capable of dying. And the wood, the wooden boards, were overlaid with brass, and this tells us that. The altar points to the capability of the sin-bearer to endure the judgment of the cross. And he endured the cross, the Bible says, despising the shame. Hebrews chapter 12. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. And is set down on the right hand of God. So Christ endured that cross. Now this brazen altar should be studied in connection With uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, by the way, if you want to write that down, because it's in connection with the burnt offering. With the burnt offering. Remember, we gave you a scripture. Look in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 2. We've already given you that time and time again. We gave you a scripture to show you the connection between his uh, sacrifice for us and. His offering Himself to God. Ephesians 5 and verse 2 says this, And walk in love, look at this, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us. Now I want you to notice. And hath given Himself for us. You ought to mark or circle or underline, for us. For us. Well, why did He give Himself for us? Because we're sinners. For us. An offering and a sacrifice. And then look at to God. A sacrifice to God. But this sacrifice was for us, for our sin offering. And it was to God for a whole burnt offering. You study that in Leviticus chapter 1. And it says an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savor. And that's what a whole burnt offering was. A sweet smelling savor. So we should study... What we're studying now in Exodus 27 with uh, Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. Leviticus 1, verses 1 through 9. Because it's connected with the burnt offering. Now the offering of the burnt offering was to be a male. Jesus Christ, God's son, was a male. And Mary's firstborn son. The animal was to be without blemish. Christ was without blemish. 1 John 3 verse 5 says, And you know that He was manifested to take away our sins, and in Him is no sin. So He was without blemish. In Him is no sin. Peter and Paul says He knew no sin, He did no sin. Paul and Peter, that's the way it, the two Scriptures I gave you. And then we find that uh, Hebrews 4 verse 15 tells us that He was without sin. Hebrews 4 verse 15 Says, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. So when we think of Christ, certainly he was the animal that was there without blemish, typified Christ who is without blemish. And another thing that we see is in Hebrews chapter seven. Let me read a couple of verses. It says, uh, well, let's read three verses. Let's read verse 24 through 26. 24, 25, and 26. It says, But this man, because he continueth ever, hath an unchangeable priesthood. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for us. For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens. That's his description. And then we come to the place that we understand that this offering was not only to be a burnt offering, it was to be a male, and it was to be, the animal was to be without blemish, representing Christ without spot or blemish. But the third thing about it, the offering had to be voluntary. He laid down his life voluntarily for us. They had to make an, a voluntary offering, and Christ voluntarily gave himself for us. Remember, we studied, and I don't have the verses exactly, but you just study the 10th of John, John chapter 10, and you'll find all through where he says, I lay down my life for my sheep. And one verse in particular, he says, I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it up again, resurrect. This commandment have I received from my Father. And he voluntarily, he says, I lay it down of myself. He says, no man taketh it from me. And we've preached on that before. <laughs> How that when, though He was taken by wicked hands and crucified and slain, the Bible tells us that He actually gave up the ghost when He said, It is finished. And He said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And He bowed His head and gave up the ghost. And I say, well, I can do that. No, man cannot do that. They do take their lives from time to time. But they cannot just voluntarily say, God, I'm ready to go and now take me and be gone in an instant. Many would love to do that in their pain and suffering. There are some that do in their pain and suffering. But they cannot do it on their own time and in their own way. And so it's, it's literally true that Jesus laid down His life. He says, I lay down My life. No man taketh it from Me. I lay down My life. That I might take it again, he says, No man taketh it from me. He says, This power have I received from my Father. (coughs) Excuse me. So the offering was accepted to God make atonement for the one who offered it. The Bible says in Ephesians one six that we are accepted in the beloved. We're accepted in the beloved for what Christ has done. And the animal was flayed. That means it was cut to pieces. The animal that was without blemish is now marred beyond recognition. Read Isaiah 52 and Isaiah 53. The Bible says he was wounded in the 53rd chapter especially. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. And by the way, that's not talking about daily physical healing as many people have applied it. We're healed through prayer. And God answers our prayer and lifts us up from time to time. But if physical healing were on the same basis as our salvation, then where would we be in our salvation if, if we prayed and we were not physically healed? And many have prayed sincerely for their healing and it never comes. Many good children of God that don't want to die and don't want to end their life with cancer to be taken out of this life, have prayed sincerely for life, and God did not choose to heal them. But when they accept Christ as Savior, He will certainly save them. If you want the basis for that, look in 1 Peter chapter, 1 Peter chapter, uh, let's see if I can get it, chapter, let's read verse 24 and 25. It says, "...who his own self, bear our sins in His own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. This has to do with spiritual healing. This has to do with salvation. For you were, and the context completely shows this. Look at it. For you were a sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. See the, the scriptural truth about Isaiah 53, when it says by His stripes we are healed, is a spiritual application not to bodily healing. Otherwise, if you claim Christ as your Savior, and you, know, you say, well, I know I've trusted Him as my Savior, and I was saved through His death, and then you turn around and say, well, here's, here I've trusted Christ for my healing, and I'm not healed. Well, then turn it right in the reverse. How then do, would you know you're saved? On, by the same token. You wouldn't have that assurance, would you? Because you say, He didn't heal me. I wonder if he, did, if he really saved me. You see, there's too many questions that come into mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we should not pray for one another's healing. And we certainly should. It doesn't mean either that just because a person is not healed, he's not saved. And it doesn't mean that, that you have healing on the same basis as that you have salvation. And that's where a lot of people have misinterpreted these, these thoughts. Because there's some that preach today. By His stripes we're healed. Therefore we can claim healing from any and every disease. You may have an incurable disease. You may die with that disease. And you're still a child of God. And you may have prayed sincerely and devoutly and, and uh, continuously for that deliverance.